Facebook is one of the biggest and most effective marketing platform on the planet. It's huge. Almost everyone you know is on Facebook and quite a number of brands and businesses are spending millions of dollars to advertise on it, including small startups, mom and pop shops, local restaurants and even churches. You can spend as little as you want and target specific audience you want at a micro level. But the problem is this. Most people have no clue how to run adverts on Facebook. They either double, waste a lot of money or hire someone else to do it for them. So my team put together a short course to help you. It's called Facebook Ads Mastery Program. It's a comprehensive ebook and a video course on how you can launch and manage profitable Facebook ads campaign for your business. And we made it super affordable too. For less than $10, you can have access to this course. Go to www.backchannel.africa forward slash Facebook mastery. If that URL is too long, you can just go to the show notes of this podcast and click on the link and get access to the course. The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Doting, coming up today on Building the Future. The money that we make off of a job as a percentage is a percentage on the customer side, the, the buyer side, not the worker side. So we don't take money from the worker. So therefore, our interests as a business are quite aligned with the worker, right? Yes. If a worker earns more money, yes. we earn a higher margin. Equilibrium between worker prosperity and customer demand is where you want to set prices. And now we're able to do that. Anyone that builds a marketplace or a platform that says that they completely solve platform leakage or, or have none is, is not telling the truth. This episode is brought to you by Rave. Rave is the easy way for African businesses to collect payments from customers anywhere in the world across multiple online and offline channels. Through Rave, you can accept Visa, MasterCard, Verve, and other debit or credit card payments from customers in over 154 countries. You can also seamlessly accept payment via your bank transfers from customers in the US, South Africa, and Nigeria, as well as via mobile wallet from customers in Kenya and Ghana. If you want to expand your business across the continent and you need a reliable payment solution, I would recommend that you sign up for Ray at rave.flutterwave.com. My guest today is Adam Grunwald. He's the co-founder and CEO of Link. And Link is a platform that connects informal sector workers with the market. I think I've spoken to someone who is building a similar business in South Africa, mm. a friend of mine, Aisha Pando. And it's a great thing to also talk about this with Adam in Kenya. We're currently in Nairobi looking at this business. And Adam is a very interesting person it's not a usual person to build this kind of business, <laughs> given his background uh, working at Google as a, a product manager, marketing manager. And it looks like he should be building some big <laughs> tech company. But it's in the mix. It's now here in Nairobi building a business that's solving a massive problem, which is very obvious for the informal sector and connecting them to market and building jobs, actually creating jobs for a lot of people. So, Adam? And, and, and we do use, you know, artificial intelligence, you and machine that. learning. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a technology <laughs> platform as well. But yeah, it, it, is, it is focused on an unlikely sector for a lot of other technology platforms. 
Um, so, so as you rightly said, you know, Link at its core is a technology platform focused on the informal labor sector. And maybe to give some context behind w- what that is or what that means, especially to people that may be listening from outside of Kenya, you know, the informal labor sector is anyone that, that operates without contract or uh, a wage salary, right? So probably has unpredictable income, inconsistent work opportunities, etc. Right now in Kenya, the size of the informal economy is estimated at 83% of the working population. That means that, you know, 83% of people that are entering the workforce each year find jobs in the informal sector because likely there are not enough jobs for them in formal contracted work. And is that where the, most of the demand is rather than the formal sector? So government likes to talk about job creation. And, and so we want to create jobs. But then the reality is that most of the jobs that they're thinking about, nobody has demand for them. It's, it's difficult to create enough jobs um, for, for, for many African countries for increasing youth populations, right? Because, you know, Kenya has an increasing birth population year on year. And, and short of massive industrial revolutions with, you know, opening of, of hundreds or thousands of factories, you know, putting 800,000 people to work in jobs each year requires massive GDP or, or job growth. And a, a lot of the typical uh, you know, sectors that, that would absorb that at the moment are, are not that large, right? Um, you know, th- th- there isn't such a big manufacturing or, or in- industry sector. And then a lot of them still choose not to full-time employ people, but rather to, to use them in casual work. So again, um, to engage with them in the informal sector, like construction, for example. Most, most people working on a construction site in Kenya w- would not be waged employees, right? They're opportunistic casual laborers. So let's deep dive more into what Link does. Um, you, you've actually articulated a problem that you're solving. Sure. <laughs> uh, 83% of people in Kenya, for example, uh, work in an informal sector. It means that they're not organized properly. They, probably they are underpaid and there's irregularity in terms of the work that they get and it means it has effect on family life, it has effect on the local economy and the aspiration of people. Dotan, you can pitch Link for us. All right. <laughs> we'll give you a job in PR. <laughs> So, so that's a huge problem you're solving. It's an economic problem at its core, basically, and a sense of livelihood that people have. And I, was, I was talking to someone recently and I said, one of the biggest problems we have in Africa is poverty. And poverty is the root cause of so many, so many issues. Sure. So corruption that you see in Africa is yep. because of poverty. Yep. Crime increases yep. because of poverty. Health challenges. Health challenges, yeah. poverty. Life expectancy can trace it to poverty. Yep. Even some of the problems you see in Europe, immigrants going to Europe is just poverty mm-hmm. because of that. If you can solve poverty, uh, if you can attack poverty uh, in different level, and there are many ways to, to, to attack poverty. Okay, so but one of them is create is enabling people to have a sense of livelihood. Yep. Okay. And that's what you're trying to do here. So let's deep dive into that. So how did you ideate that problem? Sure. And how are you solving it? The desire to focus on something like Link came from my time within Google. I, I was working on a payment product that dealt with inner city and buses. Uh, so, so, so we worked with a, a group of individuals that were largely informal sector workers. I mean, the, the people that take matatus or, or, or buses in Kenya are usually people that are earning maybe less than $300 a month or, or whatever else. So spending so much time it's seeing so many people sitting on the side of the road with a paintbrush or just being idle in a day because they didn't have a work opportunity because no one knew that this person was an effective metal worker or tailor or leather worker or whatever else. The, the, the problem became quite clear. Now, now, obviously, the problem is massive, right? It is massive and it is hairy and like messy and, and everything else. And so we don't say, <laughs> certainly not now, um, that, that we can solve all of the challenges of the informal labor sector. So actually, the first thing that we did was was just trying to learn more about what sorts of challenges people that are in the informal labor sector are facing, people that want to get services from 
informal workers are facing um, so that we could find where we could best commit our efforts. So um, Link actually began, uh, we, we moved to an apartment above a hardware store in Nairobi's industrial area. So we would spend our days like you know, walking from construction sites to construction site or just talking to people in, in small or makeshift workshops. How do you get materials? How do you find work? Are you making more this year than you made the year before? I'm trying to answer all of these questions so that we can kind of choose our, our, our plan of approach. And um, obviously, the more that we learn, the more problems that we saw. <laughs> it's like your, your eyes are bigger than, than, than your stomach. You know, there, there's so much to do. And that's actually why, why we chose to, to build a platform, to take a platform approach as opposed to a service approach. But what led to that? I'm really interested in, okay, you moved to Kenya. Oh, okay. doing something else and you saw that problem or oh, I mean because they're different ideation story and it could be oh, oh it's just uh, actually I want to solve problems in Africa I want to do something <laughs> oh, I want to work I want to start a startup in Africa so I'm just I'm look for All problems right, so we're, we're going even further back yeah, alright yeah, let's yeah. do it okay uh, I actually I, I've been a little bit nomadic for most of my life um, I, I transferred university from the United States and, and I finished my, my university degree in Israel and while in Israel I worked with a group of friends to start an NGO faced uh, fo focused on the refugee population of Sudanese and Eritrean refugees in Israel. There, there, there's, well, at least back then there were quite a number, and, and now there still are, and there's some controversial policies now <laughs> happening. But um, the, the, the point of this was in order to provide a variety of services such as uh, food, health, and, and, and legal status. And so I spent a lot of time with um, the Sudanese and Eritrean community and was really fascinated by it, and, and it drove a passion for East Africa within me. So then I started working for companies. Or, well, when I was doing internships in the summer during university, I was working for companies that were doing work in Africa. So I worked for a company that was doing investments in, in geothermal power plants in Ethiopia, and then another one that was doing energy consulting for Nigeria. So, so the focus and desire to be somewhere in Africa um, came as far back as university. I guess what, what drew me to it was it, it seemed like this was a place where the sorts of challenges or problems that a person could work on or build businesses around were more foundational as opposed to um, surface level, like, like, like <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. a bit more artificial. Life events, I, I ended up back in the US after university. I took a job with Google. Um, I, I worked at Google for about three and a half years in San Francisco, but um, got quite antsy after about year two and started saying like, how do I get, how do I get to Africa? You know, Google has three main offices in, in Africa. One is in South Africa, one is in Nigeria, and one is in Kenya. And so the connections that I made were with the Kenya office. This was also uh, an office that was more focused on like new or, or test products as opposed to sales. And so yeah, I ended up in Kenya. I was supposed to be here for six months. I got it extended for another six months and then another year. And then I just and eventually left Google. So you I left Google. stay here. <laughs> so was it while you were at Google that you started thinking a lot more about this problem? Well, maybe not even just this problem, but while at Google, you know, I did a lot of work with like the developer outreach, you know, team. Um, so, so getting to know the local tech ecosystem within Kenya, seeing the startups that, you know, old guard of startups that, that, that had been created. And, you know, I, I did some work with, with, with Google for education. And what became clear to me, like, was that I believe that unemployment is probably going to be the biggest risk that faces Kenya and most of Africa going forward, right? Unemployment or underutilization, it has the side effect of probably creating poverty or, or other negative things, as you said. And, and I think this is just a, a huge fundamental challenge. So this kind of resonated with me and I was reading a lot about it. And, and this kind of led me to identifying, you know, the informal sector. And again, this was at the same time as, you know, I was still working at Google and I'm riding on these buses, talking to people about how they find work and, you know, what their life is like. And, and consistently, you know, if you ask 
someone like, what, what do you want? If they don't have work that day, the only thing that they want is work that day, right? Interesting. Less interested in, do you want to hear about financial inclusion and savings and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> They're like, no, I, like, I, I, can't, I can't make money and put you know, food on my table today. Like, I need to find a job, right? When you see people walking at 5 a.m. in the morning to get to a construction site or, or whatever else, you say. With no certainty. Exactly, right? Job. When you could get turned away, you, you see this as a radical inefficiency. And I guess being on these early morning bus rides <laughs> like, and seeing this happen so often that, got, that, got that, me that, pulled into it. That's what got you into that. And that's super interesting. And then let's now jump into how you then started um, validating it. So you sure. went about talking to people and then the problems started becoming big, bigger and bigger and obvious. Yep. And... Of course, you, you approached it as a tech person. So you've been mm-hmm. a platform, right? Uh, someone, someone else would have approached it differently. Sure. If, if they are from service, service-based um, a business. So you approach it as a platform. Correct. One of the key challenges I have about platforms in Africa, especially marketplace platform, is discoverability. Mm. How do people discover it? Yeah. I mean, it's easy for you to aggregate the supply yep. because these people need jobs. Sure. You just go to a construction sure, site sure, and sure, they sure. say, how many of you are gardeners? How many yeah. of you are this? Yeah. And you're going to get a lot of, a lot of, a lot yes. of supply. Discoverability is a prop that I think would be an issue and I want, I want to get your view about that. And then repeatability of people, okay, they discover it and they repeat usage. And then the platform leakage problem. Sure. <laughs> so do, those three things. All right, yeah. <laughs> well, m- m- maybe, I, I promise I will answer all three of those questions, but maybe even just to give some context. So, so yes, we, we are a platform and one of the elements of our platform is a, a service matching marketplace akin to you know something like a TaskRabbit or a Handy or a Thumbtack. Um, or Bisbee in the UK. There are other elements of our platform um, that, that we think are necessary to contextualize the product or the platform to this local market. On TaskRabbit, the vast majority of taskers have a college degree or higher, you know, 80, 90% of them, right? And, and just to give some context, you know, when this person has a college degree, not just this education in, in whatever it is that they studied, but like their capacity for problem solving or critical or divergent thinking of consuming and, 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 and trying new techniques or, or ways is quite high, right? And so the advantage that that person would have to onboard themselves to TaskRabbit or self-select jobs that they're doing or figure out how to effectively assemble this IKEA furniture or deal with a disruption like, I don't know, a bolt is missing, is very different than um, you know, the average person on our platform that, that does not have a high school degree um, and, and, and might have you know, exited education much earlier. So actually where we began was, was not right away with the platform, but with trying to answer the question of what does career identity look like mm. for these workers? So we, we actually began with a bit more of like a LinkedIn approach. Um, you know, we asked the question, what is LinkedIn for a linked out community? That's actually how we arrived at the name Link. Um, <laughs> because we said a lot of what's missing is that a, a person in the informal sector could do terrific work one day and, and still not have work the next day because no one knows that they did terrific work and vice versa, right? Someone could come into your house and destroy your plumbing. <laughs> like, and no one just, knows that would, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, we just go out the next day and find a job with, with the very next person. So the lack of any kind of codified career identity that stays with someone means that inevitably good workers don't have anything to leverage to get more work or higher pay over time. And bad workers can continue to do bad work, which creates this really unfortunate race to the bottom in the informal sector, right? Where people perceive, because they've had a negative experience, perceive all informal sector workers you know, to, to, to be potentially low quality or have the, a high risk of being low quality, which means that that pushes you know, wages or pay down because people try to you know, essentially subsidize that risk by saying, okay, well, I'm not going to pay more than X for, for painting because I, I'm probably not going to get a good job. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so we did begin with this kind of career identity about you know, whereas a lot of platforms 
have started with this, we're going to go to a construction site and let everyone that wants to sign up as a plumber sign up, right? And then you have massive a massive database on the supply side. We said, um, we want to go quite deep in understanding, is this a good plumber? And specifically, what are they good at as a plumber? And how do you do that? Because that's more like you're curating the service and you're checking them out before. So you're saying, these are the plumbers. Okay, there are two ways to do it. You can say, okay, these are the top plumbers that you can hire and this is well, this is this this is their work and this is their job or you can say okay these are the categories of plumbers you can hire you can pay this one 10 pounds per hour or this one five pounds per hour mm-hmm. what, what is what was your approach and how did you get to that standardization so i, I want to say you know like like <laughs> link link has evolved a lot as a business since when it started <laughs> so so i mean in the very early days you know we, we did kind of just like trust that that someone is a good plumber. I mean, we would, we would like know them from a KYC perspective, but you know, if they say that they're a plumber, then they're a plumber. And obviously this, this leads to bad results. Um, and then we said, okay, we're going to invest very heavily into vetting and, and, and screening. So, I mean, this was a very manual and, and hands-on process intentionally. You know, we have a saying at Link, though we are a technology platform, we obviously have a lot of operations behind what we do. So we have this saying that, that, that we, we do things by hand until it hurts. Um, you know, <laughs> we, and we do it by hand until it works. Um, so you know, all of the workers that were signing up and vetting were doing this manually face-to-face. For a worker to get into our system, first we have recruiting partners. These are largely um, TVET schools, technical and vocational training schools. There's other sources of referral. Um, workers on our platform that have done more than a certain number of jobs can refer other workers. But you know, that, that's just how you get onto our waiting list. Then it's very important to us that we don't just have a huge database of idle workers, right? That we can't find work for. So we look at the elasticity of supply and demand to understand this is a category that we need more workers in, right? We, we have enough demand to absorb more plumbers. And only at that point is someone taken off of the waiting list. Mm. At that point, we do a phone screening. Um, this is where we'll collect information like references that we can check, certificates, anything that maybe would exclude someone, right? Do you have zero work experience? Okay, then you know, this is not a platform that trains people to be plumbers. This is a platform that works with existing plumbers. And then they are invited into our office for in-person vetting, testing, and then should they pass that training. So that's how someone gets onto our platform. The value is most of the workers that have gotten to our platform are quite high quality. And obviously our vetting and testing gets better over time. But also uh, one of the things that, that we also found in this market that maybe would be different in a different market is due to lack of system regulations, there is a phenomenon where if someone is a plumber, well, let's just say lots of informal sector workers will not say no to a work opportunity. So even if they don't have skills or experience in in a certain job type, they will say, well, I'm going to say yes and try to do it because the consequences of me failing at doing it are not very high. There is an upside in, okay, maybe I'll figure out how to do it or get a friend to help me, right? So you'll see this happening a lot where maybe there is a plumber and then they get asked, can you do a job on this septic system, right? And this plumber doesn't specifically have knowledge or experience in working with septic systems. They're much better at, you know, working with small plumbing fixes or whatever else. A carpenter, right? Can you do a job that involves like intricate carving or or whatever else, right? They'll say yes, they'll try to find a friend, carve it, um, and then it it goes badly. So we've done the work. And again, I think another distinction from our platform versus maybe some of the other ones out there is even against each category, we map out what we call sub-skills, right? So any plumber becomes activated for any number of, I think it's about 
you know, 15 or 20 different sub skills um, that, that they might earn. And these sub skills map to the different types of work that a plumber is doing, you know, dealing with showers, dealing with toilets, dealing with septic systems, dealing with installation, dealing with repair, et cetera. How do you get that information this, from this, them? This is what's happening in the in-person oh, interview yes. and testing okay. and vetting. So um, you have specialists in your, in your team as well who can exactly. vet plumbers, painters and stuff. Okay. And, and now we have systems and processes, right? Um, like the, the tests or the, the role-playing exercises to vet each of these things have already been made and the acceptable answers and scores you know, so are you, known. So, so any per, like you, you could give one of these tests to, to a plumber to assess their, their plumbing capacity, um, even though maybe you are plumbing yourself. I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> to, to, to under, under, underestimate your skills, but like, you know, we have set up so a person, it doesn't need to be a plumber that's interviewing a plumber. Let's, Interesting. Let's so you're standardizing the operational um, efficient, uh, capacity of the informal sector in a way, like what in the UK is called NVQ, something like that, so National Vocation Qualification. Mm -hmm. You're doing something like that, but you are, you're always creating an accreditation system. Correct. For, for, for the informal sector. Correct. So that's how a worker gets on our platform. And then, you know, again, at that point, we really know a lot about that person. So um, then to answer one of your three questions in terms of making a, a successful match between demand and supply, you know, we can get all the way down to if you're asking for someone to fix one of your appliances you know, our system will ask you a series of curated questions to understand the scope. So it'll be asking you, okay, well, what appliance? And you'd say, okay, this is a, a stove. And, and then, you know, what, what kind of stove? Oh, it's a Ariston stove. Um, and, you know, what is the, the nature of the problem? And so in the background, our system is matching this to the workers that have specialty in stove repair and work with the brand Ariston, et cetera, in order to identify which are the best suited workers to do that work, as opposed to this is an appliance repair person. It's a, this is an appliance repair person that has exceptional scores on stoves and Ariston brand. So you're not an open marketplace. Correct. Like TaskRabbit would have been to say, okay, I go to TaskRabbit, I just look at these people based on the reviews. And I don't, I, it's been a long time since I check TaskRabbit, task but I assume it's going to, you go there and just choose the ones that you want. So, so but yours is different. It's, cl it's like closed marketplace. So we are indeed a closed marketplace. TaskRabbit is like a semi-closed marketplace, actually. Angie's list would be uh, so so there, there's a platform called Angie's List in the United States, mm. which is kind of like Yellow Pages. Like Yellow Pages is right. an open marketplace. You go right. there and you like you go to uh, yes. P Plumber, and then you see the list of plumbers, and you choose who you want to who you yes. work with. Yes, right? yes. Angie's List is kind of like that online um, or Craigslist. Craigslist, exactly. Yeah. So we are definitely a closed marketplace. So though we have thousands of profiles for workers, you you as a customer don't browse those profiles. You get profiles of workers that are specifically relevant to your request and it's usually about three on average so you're saying okay you give them you give them choices as well correct okay so, so you're saying these, based on your request these are the three best people that you can choose from it's actually a little bit more than that so maybe i'll just pause and say i think for anyone out there that's making a marketplace the way i like to think about marketplaces is is you have to answer three questions when you're making a marketplace the first one is are you a vertical or a horizontal marketplace do you focus on one specific category, you know, Uber, or are you focused on many categories, uh, task credit or, or us, right? Horizontal versus vertical. And obviously, you know, a horizontal marketplace is, is probably operationally more complex because you need to make operations for a variety of different service types, but vertical, maybe you have a smaller addressable market, right? So in Kenya, for example, like in the United States, you can start uh, an on-demand walk, dog walking business and only focus on that category and be a billion dollar company, right? Yeah. Just because 
the market is really huge. big market, right? So in Kenya, you know, Kenya is not Nigeria and it's not South Africa even. So the market, you know, just for on-demand plumbers is is maybe not enough to to, to justify, you know, a really big scaling business. Um, so uh, we pursued the path of a horizontal marketplace. So we do services across a variety of verticals. The guiding factor is, are these informal sector workers? The second question that you need to ask is, do you have a fixed price or a variable price? Um, meaning, are the services always the same price? Uh, Uber would be a good example of this, right? Because no matter who's driving you, this could be an Uber driver with 10,000 rides and a perfect five-star rating, he or she is still going to make the same amount per kilometer as the next Uber driver, right? There could be a famous, uh, I don't know, race car driver driving that Uber driver, and they will make the same amount per kilometer. Whereas in other marketplaces, like in the yellow pages, for example, obviously you'll call one plumber versus another plumber, and you're going to get different prices from each, right? Interestingly enough, in Kenya, there is not a lot of price standardization already in the market. If you're in a market that, that's in, in the West, a lot of times there are industry rates, right? What a plumber will make per hour. There's also minimum wage laws um, that, that, that govern it. And so then it's a bit easier to say, look, every plumber makes $50 an hour and everyone says that's reasonable. But here, you know, because prices are a lot lower and because there's variance in quality and reliability, yeah. it's very hard to from day one, standardized rates. You know, Uber was able to do it, but, you know, it's still a, a big fight, right? Because in the past, at least in Kenya, you know, that was not how taxi drivers operated, right? They would change price based on a variety of factors. Oh, it's raining. Oh, there's traffic. Oh, you know, it's you're demand. a tourist. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just landed at the airport. Yes. You, know? you don't know where you're going to. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and so, you know, Uber can come in and, and, and because it's one service, kind of conform everyone into a fixed price. Uh, but with some resistance. In our case, with so many different services, it's very hard to say, let's say plumbing, it's always, you know, every faucet replacement is this price or every hour of work is this price, maybe when the type of work is very different, right? Um, in terms of the expertise or sophistication or experience that it would require. Um, so we, we wanted a variable price model to begin. And then the third, and I think maybe most important question that a service marketplace has to answer is, are you a lead generation marketplace or are you a full service marketplace? Uh, lead generation would be where um, the purpose of the marketplace is to just give you leads. Again, I'll use the example of Yellow Pages or, or Craigslist. Like, here are some plumbers, call them up, work it out. I hope it goes well, but if not, like, that's your choice. <laughs> and, and obviously there, you'll probably, if you make revenue, make revenue on the side of the, of the supply, right? To say, okay, well, I'm gonna charge you to put your name forward as one of these leads. Um, I think a, a good example of, of people doing this in South Africa is, is a company called Kandua. You know, they, 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 they work in a similar sector, but with a, a lead generation model. Or, or, or the biggest example in the US would be Thumbtack, right? So they're a, a lead generation marketplace. The inverse is full service where you stay involved in the transaction in order to ensure that it is successful. You take responsibility or, or, or liability in cases of customer dissatisfaction or, or, or mistakes. And you usually earn a percentage of the job value and, and, and quite a bit more data than you would otherwise, right? A rating after the job is done, details on you know, how quickly it was done or whatever else. So in our case, we are a horizontal, variable priced, full service marketplace. Thanks for that. <laughs> let, let me make, so make, make that like a <laughs> the side note, yeah, right? Yeah, to give us some context. I, I really enjoyed that conversation, that, that, that um, explanation actually. Okay. And I was just here listening to you. This is like a masterclass in how to be a marketplace <laughs> in Africa. Now, my next question on that, I'm going to still go back to those three factors that I talk about, but I really want to deep dive on, on this one. My next question, how did you come 
about that decision and what are the key factors that you considered, especially in Kenya? Uh, and then a writer question to that is, what are the key factors that anyone I want to be, maybe not similar to yours, but any marketplace in Africa should consider? Uh, is it pricing, the ability to pay, the cultural nuances, or, or even service? Um, being yep. able to do the full service means that you're controlling the the quality. I, I don't know, what are the key things yeah. that you, you look at? It's a really good question. And again, I, I mean, I, I have the answers that we made for Lincoln and hopefully one day is link is radically successful and that gives maybe even more credibility to the choices that we made but but yeah, for now I put that you are I'll, I'll just say some, some thinking so you know first on on if you're vertical or horizontal um you know I, I think that really is about modeling out the addressable market size right so if you're like I would really love to make an on-demand dog walking app here in Kenya that then you'd really need to ask yourself um you know h- how many people even have a dog <laughs> like had that dog walked how many people have gardeners whose job it is to walk the dog right how big is this addressable market really and i I think you do that exercise you'll see that um you know it it's just not going to be big enough right so you'll either need to have insane margins or or uh very quickly uh, be be doing other things um in in fact i guess that that is another tactic right to start as a vertical marketplace and then maybe build up additional services from there um in our case Ultimately, because we weren't sure which vertical would be big enough, because it's very difficult to get data in the market, right, about how, how much money is spent per month on plumbers or electricians. So for us to say, ah, let's start with electricians was difficult. Um, so, so we wanted to actually validate which are the big categories. And now, you know, our data can show us which categories have the most demand, which is quite exciting. But uh, yeah, I, I think looking at what, what gives you a large enough market size which I think another consideration for marketplaces, you mentioned some of these things before, but some marketplaces are susceptible to issues such as disintermediation, right? A platform leakage, cutout, or whatever you want to call it, right? And, and, and you can kind of tell them quite quickly by um, understanding the value proposition that, that your marketplace or, or, or service has. For example, what makes Uber quite successful is because it fulfills the need of, of immediacy or urgency, a, a time-based need, right? That you're unlikely to cut out Uber because you don't want to wait the extra 30 minutes that it would cost you to get you know, that one driver to, to come to get you as opposed to whichever driver is closest. In the case of something like a house cleaner, for example, maybe that is a lot more susceptible to disintermediation, right? Because um, this is a person that you can organize a, a, a ongoing relationship with. It's not so likely that you'll wake up and be like, I needed a house cleaner here in five minutes. You know, like, it, it's something that you can probably plan in advance a, a, a lot better. Um, and also something where the service quality and intimacy is, is quite a bit higher, right? Riding in a taxi is not necessarily a very intimate relationship. Um, that, that, that taxi driver doesn't need to know your preferences as an individual, right? I mean, they should hopefully drive safe um, and, and, and take an appropriate route, but you know, a, a person that's cleaning your house and knows just how you want something put or, or, or just um, you know, what, what to do with those, those fresh flowers that you brought in or whatever else, I mean, th- th- this is a more intimate relationship and therefore you know, assessing taxi versus cleaning could probably inform you, hey, I, I think maybe this is one where we are more susceptible to risks of cutout um, or, or other issues. Um, so I, I think when, uh, to summarize, you know, when, when looking at the first question, the important things are being honest about your market size and then being honest about where there could be risks within that. So maybe you have a large market size, but there's a high chance of disintermediation or the value of the jobs are very, very, very low. Um, and, and so even though there's a lot of them happening, still in terms of a bottom line, you're, you're not gonna be making very much. On the second one, fixed versus variable price. It's interesting because at, at Link now, um, we, we feel that we finally have the information to start fixing some prices. Um, 
fixed price works quite well if you can find a price that sits at a nice equilibrium between you know customer demand and, and what we at Link called worker prosperity. So you know one of our goals at Link is that we, we want to make sure that that workers that are participating in Link make more money mm-hmm. than, than they would outside of Link. And, and actually, we're really happy to have found that on average, workers on the Link platform are, earn double their income on, on average um, than they would outside of Link. And this is important to us because you know platforms do have the potential to to push down the market. Um, you, you you hear this a little bit. It, in the West, right? You know, Uber drivers are working 12 hours a day and not making minimum wage or, or whatever else. These competitions between ride-sharing platforms are pushing prices down. I think platforms in, in Africa are not as susceptible to that, right? Because the alternative to working on that platform is usually heavy underemployment, right? So a person that starts driving for Uber before they were on Uber maybe is not working five days a week and, and, and therefore they're probably making more on, on Uber than they would otherwise. Um, so, so whereas in the U.S., you know, maybe there's the alternative that the unemployment rate in the U.S. is like three percent. Right? Like, if someone wants to get a job, they they can, you know, or hopefully they 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 can, you know, they can get a job at at McDonald's or, or Starbucks or whatever else. And, and so, therefore, there is a trade-off. But but this plumber, like, there's not a place hiring a plumber that that they're missing out on by instead joining a, a gig platform. So I want to put a pin on that okay, because sure. that sounds to me what you just explained. That means if. I'm a plumber in Kenya and I don't have other alternatives or other suitable alternative compared to Link, which gives me regular jobs and make me discoverable and probably enable me to get uh, good, good, good money in terms of standard price and I don't have to haggle. Doesn't that mean naturally that you have the power to drive the price down? Because I'm looking at it from the demand point sure. of view. If I'm getting Link plumber at higher rates than I would have gotten if I just go on the road and just wave somebody down. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that affect the demand level of your of, of your platform in any way? So it looks to me like the result, I mean, I'm not advocating that, but it looks yeah, to me yeah. like driving a price down looks like a, so that you can be more competitive to the alternative, which is just waving somebody down. Yep. Uh, it's a really good question. So do you want me to answer that yeah, question now yeah, or yeah. do you want me to continue the Oh, you can continue. You, you can do both. No, I, I, okay, so, so let me answer that one first. Absolutely. That, that challenge is a real challenge. And I think that that is a function of, of the decision uh, that the company makes, right? Um, so it is a function of what, what the culture or mission of, of that business is. Our mission from the beginning is, is quite aligned with career growth and prosperity on the worker side. Um, and maybe a bit more so than the customer side. So th- there is a strong voice within Link about you know, that would push back against something like that. I think uh, one of the things that, that we did from the beginning is the, the money that we make off of a job as a percentage is a percentage on the customer side, the, the buyer side, not the worker side. So we don't take money from the worker. So How does that work? So if uh, a cleaner says, I want to make $10 for this cleaning, the price for the customer would be eleven dollars. So, so the, the cleaner makes what she has asked for. Ah, so the the supply side dictates the pricing. Correct. So the plumber in this case it, is the one that says, "I want to for this job or for this type of job, I want to be paid ten ten dollar yeah. per hour." In, in, in the case where where we don't, like I said, we're just starting to set prices in a number of our categories, but. You know, for the last two years, right? It has been the worker dictating the price, right? We give them enough details about the job, you know, because you've said I, I want someone to fix my Arison stove, and it has this problem. Then we can send all those details to the appliance repair individuals, and one can say, oh, okay, I'll fix it for twenty-two dollars, and one says nine dollars, and one says fifty dollars, right? And then the customer gets to choose, but each of those has a 
10% markup that the customer pays. So the workers get what they want. So therefore, our interests as a business are quite aligned with the worker, right? Yes. If a worker earns more money, yes. we earn a higher margin. So we don't have an incentive to push That's the, the, good. their price down. But how does that um, affect you in terms of this competitiveness, the competitiveness sure. of that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So a couple of things have happened. So one, I, I will say like, there is just so much variability in the market that it's very difficult for someone to point and say, this is how much painting should cost. I think actually, you know, one very exciting thing about being a platform is, is we collect a lot of data after thousands or tens of thousands of, of, of jobs related to painting. We now are a pretty definitive voice on what is the right price for painting. I mean, this is what customers are willing to pay. This is what workers are quoting. And so, as I mentioned, that equilibrium between worker prosperity and customer demand is where you want to set prices. And now we're able to do that. If we tried to from the beginning, it would be very likely that, that, that we are wrong, right? That's um, true. We, we are trying to solve this issue of making sure that we always give a fair market price um, that, 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 that customers feel is fair and workers feel is fair via you know, collecting this data and, and, and applying it. Um, in terms of market competitiveness for the last two years, the fact that workers know that they're quoting against one another, right? It, it's, a, it's a reverse auction model, essentially, right? Um, so, so they understand um, that if they say something that is incredibly non-market based, then they probably won't get the job. And, and sometimes there are people that, 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 that quote very high prices, but that's also why we aspire to deliver three quotes, right? You get that Goldilocks effect, right? Too mm -hmm. high, too low, <laughs> just right. And, and, and now, like I said, you know, we can even see quotes that have rates between this range are more or less likely to get booked um, so, so that our system and you know, the, the technology and, and intelligence behind it, um, it is able to learn from it. But, but essentially, I mean, it's, it's been a really big data collection exercise. That, that's really good. And, and I'm going to ask one question about that data bit because I see that as one of the most valuable things that you're building here. And it's a very big mode and defensibility uh, for you. But we can continue that, the factors there because I really sure. like that. It looks like a masterclass <laughs> to me about how sure. to build a marketplace in yeah, Africa. So, so we were just talking about how to, how to set pricing, right? Yes. Um, and, and being a variable price. And I think if you can, it is often good to set a price. But if you set the wrong price, it can be quite dangerous. And it is a lot of work to set prices I, because then you need to maybe convince workers or, or suppliers to, to operate at that price, right? So, so we started as a variable price model with the intention of transitioning to a more standardized price model, right? Um, and, and, and I hope now that, that that makes sense how we did it, right? We, we can give variable prices by allowing workers to quote based on the details that the customer provides for a job. So that in that way, we provide a variance of prices to the customer. We try to make it fair with this reverse auction effect and we collect data that then allows us to eventually say, yes, for cake making, you know, it should be around this price or for massage, the right price is 2000 shillings an hour. Um, and, and so now we, we have the data to do that. In, in more developed markets, as I said, you'll have existing empirical data about you know, what are plumbers paid, what are minimum wages, what are wage laws around this, um, and, and, and you'll go forward. Now, that being said, there are some categories where there are just radical differences. So, so uh, I guess the better way to say this is standardizing price makes sense only if you can also standardize quality output, right? Um, if a person is paying the same price and gets radical differences in quality from one worker to the other, then they will feel that, problem. Yeah. Uh, that this is a problem. Um, so if you are working in a category where there is likely to be 
or if you're building a marketplace in a category where there's likely to be heavy variability within um, the, the, the quality output, then you probably still want a variable pricing model. Um, a good example would be nannies, um, huge, huge population of domestic workers within Kenya, within Nigeria, and in, in, in many uh, sub-Saharan African markets, actually much more than, than in the West. Um, and if you think about it, it would probably not be very successful to say every nanny you know, is, is equal and is going to be the same and, and should make the same amount. There's, there's families that maybe want to invest substantially more in order to get a nanny that has a higher level of education, uh, knowledge in early childhood development, uh, maybe may, may advanced training in certain cuisines of cooking or, or whatever else, right? Telling that person, um, nope, all of our nannies cost X amount. Maybe you're underpricing yourself and the person is going to say, wow, like I want someone that's five times as good as someone at that price, even you know that you forced a great person into that price. Um, and also maybe you're, you'd have to set your price too high, right? Um, there's just too much variability in, in, in what the output would be, right? So that would be a case where a, a set price pricing model probably would not work very well. Cool. Okay. So then the third one, uh, full service versus uh, lead generation. I think that really comes down to what the value proposition on the buyer side is, right? Um, the, the person that, that needs services. In, in the West, actually, often the value proposition is just finding someone available because uh, there are existing um, systems in place to make sure that everyone that is a plumber is actually a plumber yeah. and has insurance and you know uh, we will tell you honestly hey i'm sorry but i don't i don't deal with masonry so like i can you know fix the toilet but i can't reset the tiles right whereas as i mentioned before like in this market that's not necessarily the case right the person the plumber will be afraid of losing the job so they'll say i'll do everything i'll do it and I'll also like bake for you and watch your kids while you're gone like don't <laughs> worry like, like i'll take all the jobs <laughs> um so and i'll repair your car in the exactly, process <laughs> right? um, so uh you know in that case in, in in a developed market maybe the value proposition is more finding someone so so something like a thumbtack can work really well right you get leads right away. Here's three, three really good event photographers. They're going to be event photographers. You're probably going to be happy with them. They're not going to maybe take your money and run away. If they did, you could probably call the police and the police will succeed at tracking them down. Um, whereas, you know, in Kenya, maybe that's not the case. If your value proposition is less around finding and more around, ooh, I'm really worried that even whoever you give me will not do a good job, Right? It's more around quality or convenience or the experience or price or other things like that. Then these are things that are very hard to control in a lead generation marketplace. Right? How, how can you really control quality in a lead generation marketplace? The only way is just by knowing so well that every single person on my marketplace is, is just the best, is amazing. Right? We'll always do quality service over time. And you, know, you can't even be sure at, at that front. So I guess on our front, we saw a lot of lead generation marketplaces in Africa that, that never really got off the ground. Um, and it's because it's not so difficult to like get a whole lot of people to sign up. You know, um, you can go out, you go to maybe a, a slum area who's looking for a job as a housekeeper, 10,000 people join your platform, but then knowing which one is good or, or, or not good or which one is, is the right one to put forward when, when, when a person asks for leads, it's quite difficult. And, and even though it's just a lead generation platform and you say, okay, well, we're not responsible for quality. Your platform is going to have major brand, you know, or reputational yeah. issues if you put forward a really bad worker that, that God forbid endangers a child or, 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 or damages someone's home or whatever else. And it affects your reputability as well because then if I go to your platform and I can't trust it for giving me the exactly. right person or even increases 
the kind of work that I have to do because one of the best thing any business could do is to reduce friction, right? Correct. If you oh, solve problems, if you make me work Correct. a lot to be able to get through yeah. three, th- three pages or four pages of plumbers yep. before choosing the right one and even that is a gamble, then that's a problem for me. Or, or like in our case, you know, I mean, we really looked at what the experience looked like. So, you know, finding is just one issue, but then... You know, if you get, get the number of a plumber, first of all, you can drive on, on the road here and you'll see a piece of cardboard on a tree that says plumber with a phone number below it, right? Like finding is not really the, the big challenge. Um, you know, you'll call that number and they'll be on a very noisy matatu and they can't speak now and they'll call you back, but then they don't call you back. So then you have to call them back and then, you know, you're, you're, you're speaking with them about the problem and it's hard to hear and it's not a conducive conversation. So then they're supposed to come to your house to see the problem and then they, they don't show up that day, right? And they don't know how to get to your house and exactly where it is and, oh shoot, you're missing work in order to be there for the plumber to arrive. So maybe the plumber can just coordinate. Like, like th- this is kind of what, what the interaction looks like. So um, when we say convenience, if we think if, if the platform can solve a lot of those problems of collecting your information and communicating it to the worker in a way that the worker understands very clearly, um, then that's already uh, s- serving a, a really large need that would otherwise take maybe a lot of time. If our platform, and, and it does, can guarantee that the worker shows up on time, um, th- then maybe you avoid a situation. And again, now, obviously, this is a value proposition to, to only those individuals where like time is, is, is heavily valued, right? So um, maybe for some people, they don't mind. I'll, I'll be at home all day, I don't care. Um, but, but, you know, if you have to be missing hours of work and the person says they'll come at nine and they come at one, um, you know, that, that, that can be a really frustrating experience. And so solving each of these problems, um, and because these are the problems that, that we really identified, we realized that we needed to be a full service marketplace in order to kind of have the, the oversight and the involvement and provide the support that would be required in order to alleviate these problems. Now, let's quickly jump into the last one, actually, about the platform leakage or cutouts. And sure. I think that's one of the key questions I used to ask a lot of people that are building marketplaces. Bring it on. All right. Okay. So, how are you solving that? Uh, sure. So, first, I want to say anyone that builds a marketplace or a platform that says that they completely solve platform leakage or, or have none is, is not telling the truth. It's very, very, very unlikely. Inevitably, you have to model for some levels of platform leakage. So the goal should be minimizing it as opposed to completely eliminating it. Platform leakage is, is opportunity cost, right? So you have already acquired that customer usually, right? Like they have had at least one experience with you. So um, for some people, they actually don't mind having platform leakage. They don't mind being, being matched on the platform. In our case, um, there's a couple of things that have, has made our risk of platform leakage lower. Number one, uh, we learned that the greatest initiator of disintermediation, um, the person saying, hey, let's do this outside the platform, is the supply side, the worker, right? Um, the worker says, let's do this outside of... Is leak. it? Yeah. Not, not the demand side. Yeah. Who wants to pay less? Who doesn't want to pay you the 10%? So, oh, sorry, not for us, but I'm saying in yeah, other... Yeah, in in a, most places. So, not, not the... Okay, because... In, in other platforms in the world. Because, you know, in most, in most cases, like, let's, let's take an example. Uh, there, was, there was a company called Homejoy in the United States. It was an on-demand cleaning company. And now the, the customer, unless that, you know, like clicked really into the site, didn't quite know the breakdown of payment between Homejoy versus the, the cleaner, right? So the customer is seeing $60 an hour or whatever for cleaning. But the cleaner knows that, that he or she is making $35 an hour, right? And knows that the customer is paying 60 and there's an additional 25 that's going to home, home joy, joy, right? Um, and so then the worker who feels, first of all, 
I'm not happy with the $35 an hour, what was the one usually initiating the request to the customer? Like, hey, here's my number. Will you just call me directly next time, right? The, the customer is like willing to pay $60, right? They have gone to this platform and that's a price that they're okay with. Maybe the, the, the worker has negotiated something with them where like you can even pay less than 60, pay me 50 and we're both happy. Um, but you know, the worker, the, the customer has already shown a willingness at, at that price. Um, so maybe they're not then tr trying to disintermediate as much. I mean, I'm sure there are customers as well, but we just saw that it was higher on the worker side. Now, on our side, because workers quote their price and we don't take a percentage of that price, the initiation of cutout by the worker is a bit lower, right? Um, so one reason for cutout or disintermediation is, is on money. Um, in our case, we, we have a very low margin at our margin is 10% of the job value. So if you're doing a financial calculation, you know, you're a customer and uh, you get a, a, a cleaner from Link, it's $10, so you're paying $11. So, okay, you want to save that $1. You know, so, so, so I, I actually, I don't want to use the example of cleaning because as I said, this is a category that's super likely to be disintermediated and, and not a very high focus category for us. Um, so let's take the example of plumbing. So the plumber is doing the work for $20. So Link is making an extra $2. The customer is paying 22 So you know, the customer would have to go to the worker and say, hey, do you, do you want to do this outside of Link, you know, the next time? So then the worker would say, okay, well, what's in it for me? And then the customer would say, oh, I'll, I'll pay you more than you were making. Oh, you were making $20. So now I'll give you $21, right? And so all of a sudden, you know, like it, it, is, it is a small margin for, for, for it to make sense for the, for the customer worker. You yeah. know? And, and doing it outside the platform, the customer loses any of the guarantees, insurance, uh, warranties, et cetera. The that cost link, benefit link, link, doesn't link, so add up. Doesn't quite add up. So when you have not a lot of take and low amount from worker, um, it doesn't happen that often. The other reason that cutout could happen is if the platform itself has friction within it, right? If it's just easier to communicate, ah, let me just call up this plumber and tell him to come back, right? Um, so a platform must make sure that the experience of using the platform in order to find workers or even get the same worker back again is easier than whatever the other status quo alternative would be, right? Calling them up, what's up, being, et cetera. In our case, you know, we have a rebooking feature, right? So a person that you had a good experience with before that you want to rebook, you can rebook them with, you know, two clicks, right? Very, very, very quick and, and very easy. Um, we have a number of automated systems that give you very quick feedback. So if yours is a platform where a person makes a request, doesn't hear anything from someone for a day, right? Then that, that's an experience where I mean, forget like the cost analysis, right? They, they, need, they need a plumber, right? Like, so they're not, they're not willing to wait. So I think that the second important thing is on making sure that you don't have friction in the platform. Um, so, so, so one is, you know, on what the commission or, 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 or who it's taken from. Second one is on the friction that, that exists within the platform. The third one is um, making sure that you provide enough value to either side that they will feel it <laughs> if they lose it. So you could take a very hard line approach and say, if a worker is ever caught um, cut, 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 cutting the platform out, then they're kicked off of the platform. Now, if your platform represents 60, 70% of their monthly income, then is it really worth it to work with that one customer for one job every three months that they need for plumbing, right? Maybe not, right? All of a sudden, that's a very heavy cost benefit analysis for that worker. But additionally, if you, can, if you wanna take a more positive approach, then you can apply things like uh, you know, Uber has utilization bonuses. If the worker can get X amount of jobs done each month, then they get a bonus, right? So they want to do jobs on platform. In, in our case, remember, um, a really critical part of, of the worker's life on the link platform is this digital profile that they have. So each job that they do builds up ratings, reviews, and job numbers and endorsements on their profile, which workers understand 
helps them win the next job because they have a more compelling profile, right? So they wouldn't want to miss out on the opportunity maybe to get this rating on their profile. And they can get more, more, more money for jobs because, because they yeah, have more exactly. ratings and that means they can, they can command more, 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 more pri better exactly. pricing next time. Exactly, yep. It seems so, you've added a lot of stuff there that <laughs> I see that makes a lot of platform work better. Like I use Fiverr and, and People Per Hour a lot and mm -hmm. I see that. I mean, that, that's a platform that is normally should be susceptible to to platform leakage yep. but it's I really, I really use, see that enjoyable, yeah. because those people want to build more ratings and exactly. they want to and because more ratings mean more job and, and more absolutely. job means more money and then they can even come out with better pricing as they grow absolutely and I think one really interesting thing in a market like Kenya is harken back to the very beginning of the conversation where we talked you know this is a massive sector that's very broken. There's a lot of different things missing because we take a platform approach. You know, we, we say, you know, we're, we're kind of trying to build a castle and a moat in a very, 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 very difficult to reach ecosystem, right? It's difficult for other startups or other even industries or, 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 or businesses to access this informal sector, right? This is, you know, the holy grail for banks or, 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 or for, for telcos and, and things like that. But obviously we're, we're collecting a lot of data. Um, so we will have options in the future of, do we want to add additional products or, or services or even partner with people? Let's take, for example, everyone's favorite topic, financial inclusion, right? Loans. Now, you know, most loan products are just based on a person's cell phone usage behavior, right? How much mobile money are they, are they spending or, or receiving? In our case, for all the workers in our system, we know exactly how many jobs they're doing each month, exactly how much money they're making on each of those jobs. All that money is flowing through us. We also have indications of things like their timeliness and, and how good they're doing, and we can predict how many jobs they're gonna be getting next month. This is a lot of information that can be used to assess whether or not this individual is a worthwhile credit risk or not, right? And probably much more advanced. I, I don't want to like poo-poo on, on other like credit credit rating models, but like maybe even more advanced than you know a person's unpaced behavior. So you know, one that's an interesting revenue opportunity for us, either through partnership or, or doing it ourselves. But also, it's yet another benefit for the worker being on our platform. Do more jobs, get a higher loan, right? Do yeah. X amount of jobs and you access, you can access this loan product, right? Um, so you can also build in these value-added benefits for parts of your platform. That's really super, actually, because that goes deep into that economic development that we talked about in the beginning, alleviating poverty and addressing one of the largest markets in, in doing that. And what, what you're doing is not just creating jobs and a livelihood for them, but you're also doing something, giving them access to financial services. And I've sure. been getting really interested in that as, as a subject recently about how do you see ThinkTech bigger than it is right now? It's not just the technology, sure. but, but how do you create financial services and give people access to it? Because it's the bedrock of a lot of things sure. to health and a lot of stuff and you're doing it seems to me that you're building a fundamental block or foundational block for, for, for that yeah. there's something else I wanted to add to what you talked about in the platform leakage and say that like a statement or even a question I think there's an added, added, added way of building a motor and reducing reducing platform leakages trust payment trust right I don't go to your house and start haggling with you because sure. that's what they do normally right mm -hmm. so, so you can call a plumber and it goes there and it's okay this job is going to cost uh, I know in my head that it's going to cost $30, but then the person says, no, no, I'll pay you $20 and hmm. start arguing about that. And yep. at that point, I've spent so much time to come to Or you. maybe even after the job <laughs> is done, oh, this took longer than I was expecting, pay me more, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And so, so do you see that as, a, as, as one of the uh, ways in which you reduced that? Yeah, and actually on, on both sides. We see it just as much, you know, because there are cases where the customer does not pay the worker, right? I'll, I'll send you money on M-Pesa tomorrow. Call, oh, I'm, I'm out of town. I'll do it when I'm, like, you know, and the person is waiting 10 days, right, in order to get paid. Uh, so we also 
alleviate this problem on the worker side as well as the customer side in terms of payments. I think, so yes, uh, the, the, the friction, there is a lot of, fri- like payments is one area where there's a lot of frictions around it. One, some people do not like negotiating or haggling prices. By the way, some people do like negotiating or haggling prices. But another one is also on payment. Like um, there are some people that might want to pay with a credit card, right? Um, and, and obviously it would be very difficult for the average plumber like to have a credit card reader and, and, and accept that. Some people need uh, receipts that they, they can use, right? And it's difficult for uh, a plumber to like, generate a receipt. Some people may want to pay at the end of the month. Um, and and let, let, let's say someone that's getting multiple different services done, right? Wants to pay all in bulk, a bank transfer, et cetera. Um, you know, we have the choice of whether or not we want to give those sorts of credit terms or, or, or periods, whereas an individual informal sector worker probably doesn't have the capital to do that. So, mm-hmm. so there's a number of benefits um, that a platform can provide based on payments that is just yet another friction that exists in the status quo that a platform can eliminate and therefore is a reason to continue to operate on platform. How big is your platform now in terms of all the numbers that you're tracking or measuring? Yeah, so we, we have about... Uh, 1,400 active workers. In the last two years, we've completed about 22,000 jobs and we're going growing quite quickly. Yeah, I, I think the, 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 these are two pretty important numbers. Um, I, I think other really positive things about our platform is we, we, we have quite a high level of customer retention. So our customer retention is it's about 85%, meaning people are enjoying the platform and, and, and coming back for more. I guess that, that's another one. In terms of what makes us less susceptible to disintermediation, we, we have it's about 72 different categories. They're, they're broken into segments, you know, um, like the beauty segment might have manicure and, and massage and um, hair, hair care, but 72 different categories. So even if someone had such a great experience on our platform that they love this plumber so much that they save Betty the plumber's number and their phone and they always call Betty the plumber instead of coming back to us, this, this customer, this household is probably still likely to come back to us when they need an electrician because they know that Link gives excellent workers, right? Like Betty, so... They can disintermediate us from 72 categories and then, you know, we've made the LTV of the customer times, you know, 50. So That's um, awesome. not, 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 not to say that the, the issue isn't important and shouldn't be mitigated, right? Yeah. But even in a worst case scenario, if someone likes our platform, what, what our platform sends so much, like a disintermediation is also an endorsement of the worker on the platform. This person is so good, I don't need another plumber ever, right? So maybe they'll also come back to us for <laughs> You mentioned something that is one of my pet uh, subjects. Um, one of my favorite one is um, unit economics. Sure. You talk about a lifetime value. What is it like for you now? And, and, and I'm particularly interested in the cost of acquiring customer. Um, I know the lifetime value can, can be varied over time and can get improved as you go on in your business, but I'm just particular about that and the challenges and the factors that is driving your, your CAC. Sure. So Link is at a really exciting inflection point um, because one of the things that guided a lot of our decision making is we have seen a lot of service marketplaces in Africa prematurely scale. Um, Reid Hoffman speaks a lot. Uh, yeah, it's Reed Hoffman, um, speaks a lot about this concept of blitz scaling. You know, like take your platform and then just scale it as quickly as you can to a million dollars of ARR. A lot of times that that doesn't work in this. I mean, there have been a lot of people before us that have tried to make a a platform for blue collar workers because I think a lot more work needs to go into the product, not just the tech product, but also how to find out that this plumber is indeed a good plumber, how to get the plumber onto the platform when this person does not trust internet services to do self sign up, how to clearly, you know, set prices or whatever else. So a lot of what we've been doing over the last two years is, is very much on the product side, refining the product so we have high consistency and reliability and replicatability. Um, so we actually don't have a commercial team right now. We don't have a team doing marketing or, or sales. So our growth has been organic, which is a really strong endorsement. 
but um, you know, we're actually fundraising now and, and a lot of the next raise will be about building a commercial team. Now that we have enough processes to make our system run in an automated way, deal with escalations or problems in an automated and organized and consistent way, and even start standardizing out prices for various categories, we think now is the right time to really start focusing on marketing sales and other things like that. So our, our cost to acquire customers is zero. Is <laughs> zero? Yeah, like, How do you get them? What are the channels that you're using to get your customers? So now it's really all referral. Um, so, all you know, referral. We, we started out with you know, our network uh, of people within Kenya and um, we, we've grown a bit. I think there's also some aspects. So we do work for a number of, of larger businesses um, and, and relatively large projects. And so a, a lot of people hear about us um, through that. So maybe a restaurant is talking about the work that we did there and, and tagging us and, and then our, our numbers look great <laughs> because we, we have you know and, and a lot of them are, are early adopters right the, the, the other thing that actually affects that kind of number that makes you that will probably make you to have that kind of number is about locality and, and i wonder whether it's something that you would really deliberately focused on at the beginning uh, we're gonna we're gonna build network effect around this geographical locality yeah in order for us to have that and our network zero. effect is is and is still in, in nairobi i think one of the realities about our platform is until we we are a full fixed price platform you are restricted in your service buyer base of who who your addressable market is in terms of maybe socioeconomic group or whatever else, right? Uber has populations of Nairobi. Like Uber is not not a product for, you know, base of the pyramid. But, but you know... We'll it, not it, just want to use Uber correct. for various reasons. Correct. Yeah. No, in our case, we have the same. You know, there are some people that, that don't have a toilet, right? And, and aren't going to need a plumber from us. Or for their service needs, aren't necessarily interested in whether the, the fix is high quality or not, whether the fix will be long-term or not, right? What they're interested in is, can I get this fixed for free or as close to free as possible, right? Um, and, and that's very difficult for us to address, naturally. Um, so with that in mind, um, we focus heavily on Nairobi just because of the, the socioeconomic realities of the country. And is that something you're going to continue going forward as you raise more money, you're going to be expanding, you're going to be looking at uh, hyper-local, densely populated Correct. with some uh, social factors around Correct. affordability and stuff. Do you, exactly. Is that what you're going to be looking at? Absolutely. Yep. So, so one, yes, we will absolutely be expanding to other places. We think a good precursor for expanding is, as I said, having the product well-defined out, right? Escalation protocols or um, technology product, even if we're going to other countries, can be relatively similar. Maybe, maybe they're translated into a different language. Maybe they're, they're somewhat localized, but they'll be relatively similar, right? The plumbing needs or the painting needs between Kenya and Nigeria are, are quite similar, right? Maybe there's a different partner that provides paint, but repainting a house is similar to repainting a house. Um, and the things that go wrong with painting are going to be the same here and there. Uh, so having the, 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 the product heavily refined, I think, is an important precursor to expanding. And that's what informs expansion um, in terms of which target areas are Exactly that. You know, in our way, we, we look at it as, you know, two main factors are size of addressable market, uh, and then also ease of doing business. Right? Um, how hard is it to register your business? How hard is it to operate there? To get back and forth, um, language, etc. Good. And you mentioned you're raising money as well. Just talk me through how much you raised and how long did it, was the business been established? And, and then you say you're raising more money now. And what, what does that look like? Sure. Um, so we, we raised a seed round of investment about two years ago, maybe a little bit more, um, of a million dollars. I've focused heavily on building up the product, proving initial product market fit. Um, I'm happy to say that now, I mean, we, we are the largest service marketplace in Kenya, definitely. And then in terms of horizontal service marketplace, you know, focused on blue collar services. I think we're 
were the biggest or maybe one of the biggest in sub-Saharan Africa. And that seed was your first money, or first Estonian money. Uh, that, that wasn't like <laughs> from my pocket. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That was the first money in, that was the first money in the business. That's right. Yeah. It was interesting. I mean, it was an in, in, intentionally to be a, a smaller round, but the, the round took so long that, that we had already proven quite a number of things and, 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 and hit quite a number of traction milestones that then other investors kind of came in, um, which was great. Uh, so now, yeah, uh, the, the point of it was to, to heavily validate product, find product market fit, um, and, and find what our replicatable product would be, and then to raise a, a next round of investment um, focused heavily on commercialization. And That's where is that doing. going to? Uh, expansion to other cities or countries? Yes and yes. Uh, so I, a, a, lot of, a lot of big things are around, um, as I said, building out a commercial team um, marketing strategy. So, that, so in our next conversation, I can tell you deeply about our, 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 our cost to acquire customers on every channel. Um, but uh, part of it, yeah, is, is also to, to start getting footholds into other markets of operation. That's great. Um, I know this conversation has gone on. I, I really enjoyed it, actually, because Me too. <laughs> there was lots of things to learn about marketplace building in Africa, how to, uh, how to actually differentiate your product, how to build defensibility and moat. Um, I want to close with a series of fire questions I'm going to ask you around, and I just wanted to just give maybe one sentence answer to them. Okay. So, uh, ask everyone that comes to this show. So what is your biggest business pain point at the moment? Our biggest business pain point at the moment is related to hiring, finding the right uh, talent that has experience in, in a business like this. Uh, there's not a lot of very large marketplaces. Um, and so finding people that have experience in um, growing or, or running different assets of the, facets of the marketplace is, is a little bit difficult. What is your number one growth metric? Our number one growth metric is number of jobs completed. Completed. So an yeah. Engagement, right? The plumber comes, fixes the, the toilet, goes plus one job completed. so do you act as an escrow service so people pay before the job is done uh, no they, they pay usually after the job is done and then um, our system routes money to the worker and retains the, the commission and so how quickly does the worker get the money uh, from when the job is done uh, within 24 hours because the, the person that pay, uh, the, the, the supplies or the demand side pay within 24 hours or correct. immediately after correct um, it's interesting. Why did you do that? Because in other places, you pay before the person even shows up at your door. If you look at e-commerce, the number one payment method for e-commerce is? Cash on delivery. Pay on delivery, right? <laughs> so, so this is the equivalent of pay on delivery for marketplaces. Right. Um, so we are, we are exploring um, prepayment uh, as well. Yeah, and it's been interesting to see how, I mean, we, we didn't get the time to talk about the data and, and uh, some of the gold mine that you can get out of that. And that could be interesting to see how you can incentivize people to pay ahead. Sure. And make them feel, you know, secure yes. ahead, right? This yes. person will show up and do a good job. And yeah, yeah. If they don't, you, you have some kind of recompense. Yeah. Yes, yes. Or even incentive for, for, for someone to, we know that from data that you've been, you've been requesting cleaner twice a month. So yep. why not just do like a subscription service? Of course, and You yeah. pay less and mm. then you're paying ahead. And then that way you, this guaranteed work for you and there's a repeatability. No. I think the best definition <laughs> of a platform is anything that you can build additional that you can easily build additional products or processes off of yeah. and get economies of scale as you do so, yes. right? And so exactly as you said, there's a lot of exciting stuff that we can do. Yeah, great. And, that's just, and it's so possible because of the data and the visibility that you have to the data. Which book are you reading at the moment? R right now, I, I'm reading a book called Bridging the Gap. It's about uh, m marketing techniques, um, essentially how you, how you go from 
early adopters to you know mass market adopters and, and other things like that. But I, I've actually just started it, so awesome. I'll have to wait to share all of my insights in my opinion. With the author? I, I can't remember off the top okay. of my head right now. But it's called Bridging the Gap. Yeah, Because we, we would like to put our name on okay. the show as well. It's good. Which business is getting you excited apart from yours? Great question. I, I, outside of, I've been looking at a lot of furniture companies in, 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 in the US. Um, there's one called Burrow that, that makes just one couch. And first of all, I, I'm, I'm jealous of, of the US, right? Where you could just make one couch and be a, a massive business. But um, <laughs> uh, there, there, there's a lot of um, furniture tech um, startups uh, because you know, furniture is, is, is a large expense and, and, and quite costly. Uh, and so stuff that does, you know, furniture rental for a year, like you're leasing furniture and then you can have very nice furniture. I, I think it's quite interesting, uh, largely because um, the, the furniture market is a very large one here in Kenya. Um, you know, if you've been to Gong Road, I, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's mostly one of the largest furniture markets in the whole, in the whole country, actually. Is, 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 yeah, I saw that. And they also do other stuff as well, apart from furniture. You just yeah. see lots of, it's, it's like driving through a mall yeah. and just seeing different stores. And, and why it's interesting to me is, um, when you think about, remember, you know, the, the thing that I'm very passionate about is, is employment, scared and, and passionate about, right? Um, if you only can provide employment to satisfy the demand of your local economy, um, then you need a very, very, very robust local economy. Um, so, you know, it probably means that Kenya also needs to have growth in export products, right? Now, Kenya's main export products are, are agricultural um, and, and they don't export that much else. Um, so when you have you know, hundreds of thousands of people working in um, you know, a furniture sector, I wonder if there's a way to, um, especially with this growing resurgence in, 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 in Europe and in, in the United States and other places for custom-made, handmade designer furniture, I, I wonder, for example, if there's, if there's an interesting business there. Adam, it's been great having you on this show. I've learned a lot, even though I'm always super interested in marketplaces and have my views around why <laughs> they don't work in Africa. But you've oh. convinced me a lot in many ways, and I've learned a lot from you. I hope you enjoyed the show as well. Thank you so much for having me, and um, it was great talking, and I look forward to the next conversation. Great. This episode is brought to you by Rave. Rave is the easy way for African businesses to collect payments from customers anywhere in the world across multiple online and offline channels. Through Rave, you can accept Visa, MasterCard, Verve and other debit or credit card payments from customers in over 154 countries. You can also seamlessly accept payment via your bank transfers from customers in the US, South Africa and Nigeria, as well as via mobile wallet from customers in Kenya and Ghana. If you want to expand your business across the continent and you need a reliable payment solution, I would recommend that you sign up for Rave at rave.flutterwave.com. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. 
you can also go to our website thestarter.com that is t-h-e-s-t-a-r-t-a dot com and sign up for our newsletter it will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy if you subscribe now it will help us a lot thanks Thank you.